Well, good morning. My name is Caleb, one of the pastors here at The Grove. And we're going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, now, as you're uh, flipping there, um, a, a quick kind of update on where we're going to be this morning. Your bulletin's got us in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Um, with a sermon entitled Homeward Bound. Throughout last week, as uh, continued to get further and further into preparation for the sermon, especially last night, just staring again at it, the sermon continued to grow and felt like, oh, it's going to be better. I think everyone's going to be better served. This is two sermons and not one. Uh, and so, instead of verses 11 and 12 this morning, we're just looking at one phrase in verse 11. Um, the first half of verse 11, and then we'll pick up in the rest of 11 and 12 uh, later. So, we're going to be <clears throat> finishing... For the spring, this study through First Peter, we're at the end of the first major section from Peter. We're going to take a break over the summer and look at Psalms, different Psalms throughout the summer. Jump back into First Peter, back into verse 11 and 12 in the fall. So teaser, what's 11 and 12 going to be? You'll have to come back in the fall to find out. Um, but I want us to look at this phrase in verse 11 because I think... That if we go past it, I think it is the lens in which we understand the entire letter of 1 Peter. I think not only is it the lens in which we see the, understand the entire letter of 1 Peter, I think it also gives us lens as Christians to understand the world as a whole. When I was in third grade, uh, I, I found that I kept hearing people talk about these leaves on trees. But when I looked at a tree, I saw just one big green blob. Well, then I went to an eye doctor. And found out I needed glasses. And I put glasses on and all of a sudden, it didn't change the world around me. But it helped, these lenses helped me to clearly see the world around me. And I think that these four words here are lenses for us. In times whenever I think perhaps as Christians the world can get a little blurry. These, lens, these lenses help us not change the world but to see it as it really is. Viewing ourselves who we are in this world and how we are then to interact and engage in this world. So verse 11, the four words we're going to be looking at, these words, in the CSB at least, it's translated this way, the Christian Standard Bible, as strangers and exiles. As strangers and exiles. Peter then uses that as a launching point in this urging, this admonition for how they are to live in the world. So that's this second major section in his letter. Um, it's picking up then in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to 411. This is this next major section, how to live then in the world as exiles. But understanding that we are strangers and exiles here is the backdrop for Peter telling this church, these churches in Asia Minor and every church of Christ today how we are to live in the world as strangers and exiles. It's a summary statement of what Peter has taught so far in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way up to 2.10. That God has created for himself a people. These people that have experienced a new birth, that have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. They are now his chosen race. They are his kingdom of priests. They are people of his possession. And they are no longer people of the world. They're strangers and exiles here. So these verses in 11 and 12 act as a hinge between these two sections. That's why I want to spend in these two weeks on it. One this week and then in a couple months uh, picking it back up in August. So as strangers and exiles, why is it important that we understand what it means to live as exiles? Well, the definition of an exile, according to Merriam-Webster, is that an exile is the state of being barred from one's native country. Typically for political or punitive reasons. 
And this idea is Christians being exiles. It's a theme that's picked up on throughout the New Testament. But it's often got other words it's used as well. Stranger, exile, sojourner, pilgrim, alien, temporary, resident. All those words, when you read those New Testaments, it's all touching on the same theme. That we are not home here as it is. But exile in particular, that word in the New Testament is only described for Christians here in the letter of 1 Peter. It's used a ton in the Old Testament. If you go search exile, you'll see a hundred things pop up in the Old Testament. As the country of Israel was led into exile um, uh, there in Babylon. It's so much of the backdrop of, of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that word is only described to Christians here in 1 Peter. Now, the idea again is elsewhere, sojourner, stranger, temporary resident, alien. But exile carries a little bit of a different force than those. You see, I've been able to travel to Europe or to Israel. When I was there, I was a sojourner. It was a strange land. They did not have ice in my drinks. There was no central air conditioning. The taxes was included in the price of the product, which is a wonderful thing that I think America could adopt. You go and you buy something, you're trying to guess how much it's actually going to be. But there in Europe, it's like, it's $9.74. You know how much it's going to cost? $9.74. There's no guessing that needs to take place. Anyway, I digress. I was a stranger and a sojourner there. The difference with exiles, not only that you are not home, it's not only that you don't belong where you are, it's the sense in which you were barred and kind of pushed out from where you belong. There's this sense, again, of being barred from where you're supposed to be, from your native country. And this is how the Bible begins. Adam and Eve were there in the presence of God. They were there in the place that we were created to be, in God's presence, in perfect peace, in perfect shalom, that Hebrew word. But then sin entered into the world through Adam, and death spread through sins that all have sinned. And Adam and Eve, and all those born in Adam, every single person in the entire human race from that point on, was then barred from their home. Literally, you read Genesis, there's angels with flaming swords guarding the entrance back into God's presence. We are cast out. We are exiles. Removed from God's presence by our own sin. And this is the sense that Peter's getting at, is that there's still this exilic experience for every Christian still. That we are far from home. We are still barred from our true home. And this is the uh, lens in which he's wanting them to see and engage in the world. Now, why do I care about this? Why do I think this is important? Why do we spend a sermon looking just at those four words? Really, even just that one. Why are it trying to get us to embrace our exile? You want to change the sermon title, you can change it to that. Embracing our exile. Why is that important? Well, I think, I think it's important because I can feel this sense in my own heart. God has continued to work on this in my own heart. But I can get this sense as well, just in the church, particularly in America, that there is a tendency to attach our hope to things in this world. We want to try to make this world as comfortable and as homelike as possible. And I don't know if we've got the category or the lenses to see that this place is not our home. We're exiles here. To give us the lenses to see what this world is like and how we are to engage in it. How do we know what we attach our hope to? Or just think about some prevailing emotions that you feel. Loneliness, grief, 
Maybe anger, as you look at the state of our country and the way that our country is going, it feels like it's running in the opposite direction of who Jesus is and you feel this anger. Or maybe discontentment over things that you have, wanting more. Here's how you can know if you've attached your hope to the wrong thing is answering these questions. What can fix that feeling for you? However you answer that is what you've placed your hope in. I'm angry at the way the country's going. Tell you what can fix it is if we get the person I'm going to vote for in the right office. It's important for us to be able to understand this, especially as we enter into next year. What I'm not saying is we don't care about that. We certainly care about it. We're able to engage. And I thank God that we live in a democratic republic where we actually have a voice. What I'm saying is we have to be careful not to attach our hope to it. No majority in the Supreme Court will fix this country. That doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we don't pray. It doesn't mean we don't want to see God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. What it does mean, though, is that that is not our hope. That we know that this world will not be fixed until Jesus returns. That our loneliness, our grief, our anger, while we may mourn the loss of something or lament the the fact that there may be something that we long for, maybe something good, marriage, relationship, children, Oh, friends, it's right to long for that and to mourn if that's not a reality that you desire. But the answer is not a spouse or children. The answer is Jesus. He's the hope. And so what fixes that emotion for us is what we are hoping in. And as I think arguably the wealthiest country in the history of the world, we as Americans have a tendency to attach our hope to the stuff around us. And I think that this lens, understanding that we are strangers and exiles here, and embracing that exile will help us to see clearly how we are to live in this world. And in particular, the three things I want us to see this morning is that embracing our exile, it corrects our hoping. It corrects our hoping. Second, it clarifies our living. And third, it conforms us to our King. Corrects our hoping, clarifies our living, and conforms us to our King. Those are kind of three points we'll be walking through this morning. This is why I care about this and why it's important for us, I think, to sit on this. I mean, it's the name of the sermon series, Living as Exiles. Peter's mentioned it twice before in chapter 1. And now it's the lens, the framework in which he's encouraging people how they are to live as strangers in exile. So, embracing our exile, seeing it and embracing it. How does that correct our hope? Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think there is a tendency for us to attach our hope to things around us, to things in this world. Oh man, I feel discontent. But if I just have more money, well, then I could be happy. Or do we say that, no, His grace really is sufficient? Uh, there's, this, is, this is my testimony and what God's done in my own life. I shared this before. But all leading up through um, my years growing up, I was raised in the church, became a Christian in high school early on began to feel this pull towards ministry. On into college that became clarified, began to pursue that. Was on in seminary at mass, my, getting my master's. Was engaged to Leah, my now wife. Everything was ahead of me. I'd had a wonderful life so far. And to the point that when I was 24 years old, I would have said, okay, Jesus, I know that heaven's going to be awesome, and I know that when you return to bring me there, I should want that, and I'm looking forward to it, but if you could just like wait like 40 or 50 years, that would be wonderful. 
I've just got some things I'm excited about. And then, then icing on the cake, Jesus returns. Can't wait. That was my reality. It was my life until I got a phone call when I was uh, working at Sonic, America's favorite drive-in. I got a phone call. On the other end of the line was my neighbor that told me that my dad had had a heart attack. He was mowing the yard. They'd found him in the yard, and I needed to come home. It didn't look good. So immediately I got my stuff together, started to head to the airport, and on the way my mom called me and said that, that he didn't make it. He's 59 years old. Mowing the yard, out of nowhere, he was gone. And on the way home on that flight, I had to wrestle with who Jesus really was. See, I had a Jesus that was really nice and a really good addition to my life so far. I loved my life, and Jesus fit in well to that. I was excited about pursuing ministry and serving Him. But here for the first time, there was something that I felt this dissonance of the brokenness of this world and the joy that Jesus had been offering me. And I came face to face with the fact that if Jesus is real, then He should be able to come and meet me in this moment. That joy that He talks about should be real for me now. That peace that He promised should still be available to me now. And I had this longing to meet the real Jesus because real life has hit us all. And friends, in that moment, I began to see in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 the hope of glory and the hope of the resurrection in ways I'd never seen before. And there began for the first time to be this stoking, this longing in my heart to go home. With all the things that God was doing, the wonderful gifts that I had, which I loved, I began to see that the greatest gift is Himself. And I wanted Him to come. It was the first time I could honestly pray, come Lord Jesus. Oh friends, for the sufferer, the hope of heaven easily falls on our lips. Come, Lord Jesus. But for so many in this world, do we attach our hope to the things of this world, or is our hope attached to Him? Because for the very first time in that moment for me, I realized, wait a second, I don't belong here. There's something that's off. This is not the world as it was meant to be. And I knew about heaven, but now I was experiencing I didn't belong here. And what God gave me was this adjustment of my hope to, from my future, my marriage, the possibility of family, adjusted and corrected my hope and fixed it on Christ alone. One of the things that did is it allowed me to be able to enjoy all those things rightly. But it fixed my hope on Him. And I saw this great hope of His promises. This is in 2 Peter, Peter describes these great and very precious promises that we hold on to. These promises of heaven, these promises of the hope that's to come, it's all over the New Testament. I mean, just think back to 1 Peter 1, verse 4. This is the hope, the promise that's given to us, that there is an inheritance for all those in Christ that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you as God keeps you by His power until you get there. This incredible promise that this inheritance that's not going to change, it's not going to be affected, that's not going to be determined by any world powers or any political office. It cannot be touched because God is the one guarding it. And it's kept there for us. So many things about this inheritance and what it will be like when we get there, when we get home. What will it be like? This is how the Bible describes it in the, the very end in Revelation 21, the second to last chapter, verse 4. 
That when Jesus returns and brings this new heaven and new earth, restores all that's broken, this is what he will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Will be gone. Will be a memory that will be harder and harder to remember what it was like. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Oh, friends, holding on to the hope of those great promises, the great hope of those promises, no more death, no more tears, no more grief, no more pain, no more miscarriages, no more unmet dreams, no more betrayal, no more abuse, not a single cancer diagnosis, no more racism, all of it gone. He will make all things new. That's where we will find joy unbroken, peace unceasing, glory unending, worship uninterrupted, just life and light and everything that your soul has been longing for, stretching out toward the edges of eternity. That is where our hope is anchored. And that's where our home is, not here. Corrects our hope. Now there is though a danger in saying all of that that we stop there about heaven. That we end there. Those are all true. Those are promises in the Bible that we are to hold on to. But if we're all not careful, if we think about what won't be in heaven, we'll forget about who will be in heaven. I think back to January 12th, 2013, the day that Lee and I were married, just over 10 years ago now. And I'm standing there at the end of the aisle and she comes around the corner, starts walking towards me. Everyone's looking at her. She's walking down, checks to make sure I'm crying, and then looks back at her again. <laughs> and in that moment, there's no one else in the room. I see her. I see my bride. And our eyes are locked. But imagine if when she turned that corner, and I'm looking at her, I see that she's staring down at how beautiful her wedding dress is. Man, I, did, I nailed it with this dress. <laughs> couple twirls on the way down, looking around the chapel. We, we crush these decorations. How would I feel in that moment? How would others feel as they saw this? Here's the groom crying and the bride just not even paying attention, looking at all the things around. We'd all feel like, yes, these things are all true, but you're missing the point. Friends, what makes heaven so great will not be the absence of evil or wrong or suffering or even sin and death. What makes heaven so great is not the absence of anything but the presence of God. He is the substance of heaven. See, even if you had every dream you could ever, ever imagine, every sorrow was erased for eternity and you were reunited with all of your loved ones. If you had the most spacious mansion, the biggest yard to play football, and the most golden street that was in all of eternity, but you had no God, then friends, that would be hell. Going to heaven without God would be like going to a wedding with no groom. Sure, everyone's dressed up, there's nice decorations, and they're going to play the Cupid Shuffle afterwards. But that's not what makes a wedding a wedding. What makes a wedding a wedding is a bride and a groom in the presence of others and their union of two becoming one.
That's the image that John in Revelation paints what that's going to be like when Jesus returns. He is this groom coming for his bride, the church. All those in Christ. That's the way that it's described. And there's this great marriage feast of the Lamb describing Jesus as He comes back for His bride. And on that moment, if we, as His bride, are looking around at the golden streets or the pain that's gone, and we're not looking at the groom, we will have missed the point. That's why the greatest promise and the greatest hope we have is not in Revelation 21.4, but in Revelation 21.3, right before it. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And He will live with them. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them. And will be their God. One of my favorite hymns is by Samuel Rutherford, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And the last stanza picks up on the same exact idea and says this, The bride eyes not her garment... But her dear bridegroom's face, I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Friends, our hope is not just in the promises. Our greatest hope is in the promiser. That we will be with him. And when we see that we are exiles here and we embrace that, it corrects our hope and fixes it on Him. Away from the stuff in this world and fixes it on Him. So that we can walk through an election season. And we can be engaged and we can try to let our voice be heard. And we can step in in good conscience doing what we believe is best for our country and honors God. And at the end of the day, we can wake up on the next day regardless of the results because nothing can change this inheritance. Nothing can alter this hope. It is a living hope that is untouchable, imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. And so it gives Christians this sort of steadiness through this turbulent life because we're exiles. That's always been the case for God's people. And so, no matter where this country may head, friends, we can embrace our exile and not let fear rise to the top of our hearts because our king is on his throne regardless of any election results. And there's nothing changing that. And it corrects our hope and sets it on him. The second thing that happens when we embrace our exile is it clarifies our living. It clarifies our living. Now, this is the phrase that Peter's using, living as exiles. And he's about to get into how this looks in your life, in your marriages, in your jobs, in your relationship to government. That Peter's getting into all of this. As we walk through suffering in this world, as we live, how are we supposed to evangelize as exiles? How are we supposed to share our faith? How are we supposed to live as exiles? Well, embracing our exile helps clarify our living. And it does this in a number of ways. I just want to talk about three different ways it clarifies our living. This isn't exhaustive, but these are three. I think they're important for us today. The main thing, and this is what Peter's going to get into, is it clarifies our mission to the world. It clarifies our living and our mission to the world. What are we to do here as Christians? See, there's this rising sense, and I don't know if anybody reads Twitter. You probably, for your own sanity and mental health, you probably shouldn't. 
But maybe you do. And maybe, I don't know if you see some of the stuff that I see, but there's this rising sense within some in Christianity that are advocating for a sense in which part of our mission is to go and reestablish Christian principles in the country. Again, it's not wrong to do that. The question is, is this what we should push forward as one of our primary missions? Is this what God has us here to do? I think there's a danger in that, and that as we, if we shift towards that, and that becomes our mission as a church, I think we'll leave the mission that God has for us, which is what we understand clearly is to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. And here, Peter's telling us that we make disciples as, as exiles. There is no assumption that these people in Asia, Asia Minor will reclaim the culture for Christ. And again, it's not wrong in the country we live in, to steward your vote. You've got to hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is we just become kind of pietistic, remove ourselves from the world, set up in little monasteries and live as exiles. No, we can engage in the world missionally, but our mission is to make disciples. And we do that as exiles, not trying to reclaim this Christendom or a nation that's, that is uh, lived out uh, by Christian principles and Christian laws, that's not the mission. It's fine if that happens, but I don't even think it should be our expectation. Just look at Christians around the world today or throughout history. It's just not been the normative experience. And so I'm not surprised the way that things are going because we're exiles here. And Peter helps us remember how we are to the engage in the world as exiles. You think of the Old Testament, and you've got these big figures like Daniel. Prophet Daniel. He's in the lion's den. Lion didn't eat him. As he was there, though, he was there as an exile in Babylon. Israel had been taken. He was there in a foreign country. And he was there in Babylon. And you look at the book of Daniel, it gives us an excellent way of how to live for God in an exile, as an exile in a foreign country. And you think of other large figures like Solomon. Solomon was David's son who established incredible wealth and prosperity for Israel built this huge temple. Other nations were coming to him to ask for advice. He had tons of money, tons of stuff, and he sat on his throne. And part of my concern as I hear all this play out is I begin to feel like some people are saying we should engage the, the world like Solomon on his throne rather than Daniel in Babylon. And I think what Peter's helping us see here is that we embrace our exile. It helps us see how we are to live and actually engage this world. And that's what he's going to get to, again, in chapters, the rest of chapter 2 and 3 and some of 4. How do we engage this world? How do we live as exiles? And that's, it's like Daniel, not like Solomon. It helps in our mission to the world. The other thing that embracing our exile does is it clarifies our living. It helps with our relationship with the world. It helps with our relationship with the world and the stuff in this world. Again, there is just a strong tendency for every human heart, but especially in a country as wealthy as ours, to attach joy and satisfaction and hope in the stuff around us. We are consumed by consumerism. We are overwhelmed with materialism. And I don't know if we give enough, I know that I don't credit to the way in which that's invaded spaces in my heart and infected the way in which I view even my relationship to God. And the hope that I can have. And I have this unhealthy relationship with some of the stuff in this world. So how do we break free from that? Oh, there's a, a Welsh minister in the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said the way we break free from that, his point, was by understanding our reality as exiles here. If you've been here 
any length of time at the Grove, you've heard me mention this before. It's about every two years this comes back around. But it's just so shaped my understanding of how we are to live this life. He was writing this in uh, reference to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about laying up treasures in heaven. But here's what he describes our relationship with the world to be like. He says this, If we have a right view of ourselves in this world as pilgrims, as children of God going to our Father, everything else falls into its true perspective. We shall immediately take a right view of our gifts and our possessions. We begin to think of ourselves only as stewards who must give an account of them. We're not the permanent holders of these things. It matters not whether it's money or intellect or ourselves or our personalities or whatever gift we may have. The worldly man thinks he owns them all. But the Christian starts by saying, I am not a possessor of these things. I merely have them on lease. And they do not really belong to me. I cannot take my wealth with me. I cannot take my gifts with me. I am but a custodian of these things. And at once, the great question arises, how can I use these things to the glory of God? There then is the way in which we can lay up treasures in heaven. It all comes back to the question of how I view myself and how I view my life in this world. These are the lenses here. Do I tell myself every day that I live that I am but another milestone that I'm passing by, never to go back, never to come again? I am pitching my moving tent a day's march nearer home. That is the great principle in which I must constantly remind myself. Therefore, regarding myself as one who has this great privilege of being a caretaker for God, a custodian and a steward, I do not cling to these things. They do not become the center of my life and existence. I do not live for them or dwell upon them constantly in my mind. They do not absorb my life. On the contrary, I hold them loosely. I love this phrase. I am in a state of blessed detachment from them. I'm not governed by them. Rather do I govern them. And as I do this, I am steadily securing and safely laying up for myself treasures in heaven. Friends, whenever we see ourselves as pilgrims, sojourners, as exiles, it alters our relationship with the world and the stuff of this world. It helps us see it rightly. It gives us the lenses to clearly see what this world is like and gets us to a point of blessed detachment. The third thing it does as it clarifies our living, not just our mission, not just our relationship with the world, but also our expectations of the world. Understanding and embracing our exile clarifies our living and our expectations of the world. You see, some of us may have grown up in the 90s. Some of us may have grown up in the 80s. Some of us may have grown up in the 70s, the 60s, 50s. Some of us here today grew up in the 40s. And the world today is different than it was when we were growing up. There seemed to be a general embrace of Christian virtue in much of America throughout the 1900s. And maybe there feels like there's this rapid pace away from that. And there is a concern I have that as Christians, as we follow Jesus and we begin to feel the... Not only the disagreement, but the sense of anger from the world for the ways in which we follow Jesus and what it is we believe. You hear words like bigot. You hear words like um, antiquated. You begin to wonder, am I doing something wrong? 
And maybe our expectation is that we need to live totally peaceably with the world. There's not going to be any issues. If there's any discomfort or any disagreement, I must be doing something wrong. And there may be a tendency to feel like we need to adjust what we believe, adjust what we say we believe, or just water it down so it's more palatable, even with the hope of trying to bring people to Jesus, believing that if we can be winsome enough, if we can avoid the parts that may be kind of controversial or maybe stumbling blocks for people, let's push those out of the way. Let's not talk about those. Or maybe even let's change those so that people can come to Jesus. Oh, friends, then we will have neglected and ignored the reality that we are exiles here. And our expectations of the world are off. Here's what Jesus tells us our expectations should be in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. But be courageous, for I have conquered the world. Here's Jesus' expectation for the world. You will have suffering. That's coming. But did you hear what envelops the suffering? The expectation of suffering is sandwiched between peace and victory. Peace within it and victory over it. And Jesus wasn't the only one who said this. Paul said the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It's Paul's final letter to his young protege. Final letter we have of Paul. He's about to die. And this is what he tells Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Period. That is the expectation of the world. Not getting along perfectly without any issues. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. This is what Peter's writing about in so much of this letter. For these Christians in Asia Minor who had experienced persecution. And it's also worth noting that at this point, this was before Nero had become an emperor. Before Christians were being beheaded and thrown to lions in the Colosseum. What was happening here was social dislocation. Uh, their families were beginning to push them out because of their beliefs. People in the town were looking at them going, why are you living like this? This was what we may call kind of softer persecution, but Peter doesn't lower it in the sense that he talks about these fiery trials in chapter 4 and these griefs that they're walking through in chapter 1. It's real persecution. And this is what is coming. This is the, the expectation then that we have as Christians. That as you live this life, as you follow Jesus, you can expect to follow the same path that he walked. And his path led him to a cross. He was rejected. He was killed. He was betrayed. And Jesus said, all those in me will experience the same. So as we embrace our exile, it begins to change, I think, our expectations of the world. So as there begins to be any level of uh, disagreement or anger or pushback from the world, we do need to make sure, are, are you just being a jerk? Because there are plenty of Christians who are doing that. Is your tone a, a one in a way in which you are not letting your speech be graciously seasoned with salt? Paul said in Colossians 4. There's certainly that. But there is a reality, no matter how winsome you may be, how gracious your tone may be, how hip or cool you may be, how many tattoos you may have, it doesn't matter. At some point within the world, they will look at you and go, I cannot believe that you believe that. As we look at the sexual ethic of Christianity, it just flies in the face of the world today. And so we need to, how then do we engage? Well, Peter's going to tell us. We need to have an answer, a reason for the hope that we have. We need to come ready. Oh, but we should not expect that everything's just going to be fine. 
There will be persecution. There will be suffering. There will be difficulty. Your life as a Christian will not be comfortable. That's why Jesus says you have to take up your cross and follow me. It's the cost of discipleship. And God graciously gives us gifts along the way. And friends, this this journey is not the same for other brothers and sisters around the world today or throughout history. But nonetheless, it will be difficult. That should clarify our living and change the way in which we have expectations for the world. Following Jesus is hard. It will lead to sacrifice. And it is uncomfortable. And so maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, you are doing a terrible job at trying to win someone to Jesus. Like, hey, life is going to be miserable. Sign me up. Why would anyone sign up for this? Why would you sign up for a life of exile? For suffering, difficulty, persecution? Well, friends, because embracing our exile not only corrects our hoping, clarifies our living, but it conforms us to our King. You see, Jesus tells us that the way in which we live, is, the way in which we find life is through death. When he was talking about his crucifixion that was coming in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus teaches the upside-down perspective of the Christian life, that death brings life. And it was talking about himself. Jesus was the first to walk this path. See, God does not exclude himself from that life of exile and suffering. Here's what is extraordinary about the Christian faith. Is that God isn't up there creating the world and going, okay, my people are going to have a hard time. Good luck. I'll see you when you get home. God creates the world. His people turn against him and rebel against him and run away from him. And he then sets his love on them and comes to bring them home himself. While they were still enemies, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us then. And Jesus does not exclude himself from exile and suffering. He walks through it first. That's why the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 describes him as a suffering servant. That's the name of God. Jesus, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity that was born of a virgin and lived in this cursed world. Friends, God knows what it feels like to be exiled. He knows what, it like, he knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to be, by, to be betrayed by those closest to you. God knows what it's like to bleed. He has the scars to prove it. And friends, again, if you're here, you're not a Christian. This is one of the things I see that separates Christian from other world religion is that this religion has a God that has scars. A God that has entered into the exile and the suffering himself. That as he lived a life perfectly, never sinning, doing what no man, no woman had ever done, living his entire life in perfect obedience to the Father, Never once sinning. He was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. He did walk through the brokenness and pain, experiencing the death of his friends and the sadness of his friends. Even all the way up to the very end when he was betrayed by one of his disciples, given over to the Roman Empire, crucified by an unjust trial, and then abandoned by most of his other disciples, all except for John. That as he 
hung there on the cross with nails through his hand, the flesh ripped from his back. The greatest suffering he experienced in that moment was as he stood in the place of sinners and absorbed in their place the punishment and the wrath of God. The physical pain of the, crucif- of the crucifixion was not the greatest suffering Jesus experienced. That's not the night before what caused him to stay up in the garden sweating blood. Worried, stressed about what was to come. Praying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. He was referencing this cup, this image in the Old Testament, this cup of wrath that was given to him that he would drink in the place of all of those in him. That he would absorb the punishment in our place there on the cross. That in three hours, Christ suffered more on that cross than any sinner ever will in hell. That is what kept him up at night as he held that cup. But ultimately his prayer was this, God, not, your, not my will, but yours be done. And as he hung there on that cross, rejected by his own, betrayed by his disciples, and forsaken by the Father. Why did he do that? Friends, he did it because he loves you and he wants to bring you home. As we walk through this life of exile, we aren't just signing up for pain because we're longing for it, like this spiritual masochism. We are walking this path because our Savior has walked it before us. We know that His path to the cross is the path to us. And so as you embrace this life of exile, you embrace your exiled King who went before you and you simply conform your life to His. That the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. His path is the same as everyone who follows him. Oh, but friends, it was finished on the cross, but it was not over at the cross. His story did not end with nails and blood and death, but with a stone rolled away, an empty tomb, and life everlasting. And his path must be yours, but his end will also be yours as well. Friends, this is the hope. Why would we sign up for exile? Because what Jesus teaches us, it is the path to where we will get back home. That your death leads to life. Your suffering leads to glory. And your exile will lead you home because you have the living hope of a living Savior. That's what signs us up. We look around this world and go, this world can't do it. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've tried, you've tried all the stuff and there's something that's not finding, it's not fitting in your soul, that longing that you're looking for. Friend, it's found in Christ. But let me just be really clear. Again, I've said it, it won't be easy. The life you're signing up for is the life of a disciple that follows a crucified Savior. And it's a life of exile. And you have to count that cost of discipleship. Jesus is really clear on this. So why would you sign up? Well, because friends, it is through that life that you will find hope today and hope forever. I just love, there is is nothing to me that puts steel in my spine like a saint that dies well. I don't know if you've seen this or experienced this, but someone who goes to glory confident in their faith in Jesus. This past week, one of my spiritual mentors from afar, I've never met him, Tim Keller, passed away from pancreatic cancer, 72 years old. And this is what Tim Keller, in the 
closer end to his life, had to say about death. He said, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. His faith is now sight. His death has led him to life. His exile in this world has brought him home to be present with the Lord, to experience the great treasure of his soul, Jesus himself. Friends, this is why we sign up. The definition of exile is the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. Friends, I think I may make the argument that you look at the story of the Bible and understanding the big picture of the Bible. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but the story of the Bible is understood through this understanding of exile and home. That God created the world and had us there with Him in it, there in the garden. But our sin cast us out of His presence. We're exiled from His presence. And really the rest of the Bible is the story of the length that God is willing to go to to bring His people back home. From all the way back in Exodus, we were going through it, looking at the tabernacle. God constructed a way for him to dwell among his people. For their sin to be dealt with through the sacrificial system in Leviticus. For him to dwell again, a holy God with a sinful people because their sin was given to another, an animal in their place. But that animal couldn't remove the sin. So even though the tabernacle gave way to the temple, a permanent structure of God's presence there among his people, there was still this veil that separated the holy of holies, that one room in the very center where God's presence dwelled from the rest of them. So while God was among them, he was not yet with them face to face. There was still this barrier that existed. And enter the scene, Jesus Christ, who came to dwell and tabernacle among us. This picture of God dwelling among his people, the true tabernacle and the true temple. And on that day, when he died in the place of ruined sinners, and he breathed his last. The gospel writers note one of the things that happened. There's a number of things that happened. One of them is that veil was ripped from top to bottom. Showing that that entrance had been opened and now everyone in Christ had access to this God that they had been removed from. There is now this new relationship that we have to him that we, every single one of us, can draw near to him today. We do not need Moses. We don't need Aaron. We don't need a high priest. We don't need a sacrificial system because Jesus is the great sacrifice. Jesus is the great high priest. And he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And now every single one in him can walk into his presence to know him for yourself. And you are now the kingdom of priests to mediate that relationship, to mediate that presence to a dark and a dying world. And while we are here in that reality, we are still in this broken world. There is still this Genesis 3 reality showing that one day God will come back again. Jesus will return. And when he does again, it's all moving towards that great promise in Revelation 21.3 that God will finally dwell among his people. Moving to the full cumulative arc there in the last chapter of Revelation 22. The apex, I think, of the biblical story. The great promise that we have that we will see his face. And we will be home. Because this is the story of the Bible. But until we get there, here in this world, we live as exiles. And we embrace our exile. 
We continue pitching our moving tent a day's march near home as we live as exiles here. Friends, may God give us the grace to embrace that exile so that we can correct our hope, so we can clarify our life, and so that we can conform to our exiled king. Let's pray.